Hello and welcome to Dowdy, the podcast where me, Mariana Feijó, talk to my guests about the concept of bravery, or braveness, even just the moments where folks have been slightly out of their comfort zones. Today I was brave because I did a devising workshop with one of my favorite performing artists, Bryony Kimmings. I was brave because I took the step to do something creative, despite the fact that, I don't know, this last weeks, months, um, have been a bit of um, a weighty thing that sometimes makes it hard for me personally to create because of the overthinking that I actually talk about in this episode. And I've also decided to start attempting to create work based on things in my life that are still hard for me to talk about. So that's another brave thing, in my opinion. Um, if I'm uh, trying to like pep talk myself, that's another brave thing. At the same time, though, the workshop was built in a way in which you would have to record yourself performing what you had just created in several times throughout the day, under the idea that a lot of times you are creating and developing an idea in your head, maybe even on paper, but you never take it out of there. So it's it never feels like you have done something because it's still on the imagined state. So once you perform it, even if it's by yourself in your room to your phone, you have done something. And that, that was the case today. No one was seeing what we were performing. We were performing it alone by ourselves. In my case, in my room, other people might have been in their living rooms, maybe even in theaters with an audience. Who knows? There's places that are no longer in lockdown in the world. And the not brave part of the day was that I couldn't even perform those words from that subject that is still hard for me to talk about out loud by myself in my room. <laughs> And it's probably not because I fear anything, because I'm By myself, in my room, no one will listen. Whatever. I don't know, maybe it is because I fear something. Maybe I fear myself. But the words are not even able to come out of my mouth. So, I don't know. It's odd. I'm sure I'll have what to talk about with my therapist on Thursday, just before I break up with her. The episode starts as Dowdy always does, with my guest, Caris Bradley, introducing themselves. My name is Keris Bradley, or oh, technically it's Dr. Keris Bradley, but that's kind of irrelevant to my life, so I never really talk about it. I am a comedian, uh, sort of non-practicing at the moment because of COVID, and so I do a lot more of the writing and the podcasting. Those are my two other areas. So I'm writing lots of things that no one gets to read because they're all like sitcom scripts and book proposals and stuff which I haven't got anywhere with yet and I uh, do lots of podcast producing so at the moment a lot of the work that I do is for UCL which is the university that I did my PhD um, at and we make lots of podcasts to kind of showcase the research that's happening at UCL so at the moment I'm producing the coronavirus podcast which is all about UCL research, um, which is helping to understand coronavirus, understand its effects, uh, try and help with the vaccine rollout and uh, like information about that and loads of other things. And uh, a couple of other podcasts, including Made at UCL, which 
is probably the most fun from a production perspective because there's lots of like sound design decisions and stuff. I actually have to say that this is an advert because I'm paid by UCL. So UK advertising laws mean I have to declare that (laughs) so that I'm not like trick it because technically speaking I am an influencer I have more than the whatever or 750 Twitter followers so that oh I have that more is. than that am I an influencer oh, you are also I, an influencer now too yeah I just recently was in like a meeting with TikTok for also like my job and they want you to have more than 300k I think followers in order to even consider yeah it's one of those where like they picked a number which if you have that many and no more you get none of the benefits of being a quote-unquote influencer but then now thanks to this you do get all of the responsibility so that's one yeah okay I will take that into consideration then I have the responsibility of being an influencer I like when you said that you were a non-practicing comedian (laughs) because I've kind of say that about my science life because I'm a non-practicing biochemist right for a while but I guess now I'm both a non-practicing scientist and a non-practicing comedian oh that's so depressing (laughs) yeah the yeah I I would say also uh because I also am a scientist or I I was that's what I trained as in, in maths and computer science and then basically handed in my PhD thesis and was like well, that was a fun experiment, not for us. <laughs> what, what should we do instead? Let's do comedy five months later. Oh, well, that was a fun experiment. <laughs> what are we going to do next? I also want to say that I don't know if that's the book proposal you are working on, but I have the, um, the luck of reading a chapter of one of the books the... working on, and I'm looking forward to, to having the, the full book out there to be read because I I thought it was super yeah I I thought it was great and that people yeah I know that you're not necessarily aiming it for the general public but I do think that's like things that people need to read about it's very nice of you to say it is not the opinion of the people in publishing that I've spoken to about that book I spent so most of 2020 working on the book proposal and that chapter that I sent you which I wrote in like the hot box that is our flat in the middle of the summer when it gets 30 degrees inside and can't go anywhere else. It was all horrible. And I should probably mention, um, so the book is about like a history of scientific research on queerness. So going back to 19th century um, and like the way that sexology developed during eugenic science and trying to understand how those early bits of scientific research still inform how we see queer identities and queer people today and so for some reason the chapter that I started with was all about conversion therapy so in the middle of the pandemic I spent four or five months reading all of these papers from the 1850s into the present day looking at all the different ways that scientists have tortured queer people especially queer children and then I wrote this chapter up and then I sent it to you and I sent it to my agent and to some other people and then my agent and this literary agent that he knows got back to me and were like so I thought this was going to be a comedy book this is not funny (laughs) Karis and then I spent the rest of the year reshaping it and re-understanding it and so what it looks like now is very different to the thing that I I sent you is maybe more appropriate for the for the general public and is 
like less traumatizing to read that's been a fun yeah. experience <laughs> i was going to say because like if we were saying that being a former scientist and a former comedian might be a bit depressing because what's next uh, yeah what <laughs> Once you get to that point, you decide, oh, let's just read about conversion therapy. So, yeah. I think I should just not be in control of my projects because clearly I'm really bad at picking them. I think it's like more towards for your mental health, I guess. But if you were, I don't know if you were happy. I think probably saying you were happy reading about it is not the right phrasing either, but... <laughs> no, like it is, it is interesting and it does understanding this line of research like the the project has been really great I've learned about a lot of stuff I've read about a lot of stuff that I didn't know anything about particularly looking at discourse and theories around asexuality which I'm, I'm I'm not an asexual person but there's a lot of writing that has come out of this community which is really relevant to the way that we understand queerness and particularly the way that we understand queerphobia and so kind of reading a lot of writing by asexual writers has taught me so much about myself and my kind of understanding of the world so it's been like it's been a really great project to be doing but yeah there were a couple of times during lockdown where my partner was like uh you are working like 11 hours a day on this and no one is making you do that and it's making yeah. you very stressed and sometimes quite difficult to be around and so my main question is why and so we have been 2021 my mantra for this year is positive mental attitude and one of the things i'm working on particularly this month is having a better work-life balance where we are trying to be more chill about the amount of time that we put into our work and kind of yeah taking slightly better care of yeah my mental health when doing all of these things that i think on paper are interesting but if in reality they are too stressful it is really hard to keep that work-life balance during covid anyway but you are like i don't i was going to ask that if that was the moment where you started cooking <laughs> <laughs> you're the second person i have on that posts their cooking on instagram and i'm like i always like ah so cool <laughs> it inspires me to do stuff yes yeah, so some of the baking is definitely stress baking a lot of the baking is because I can't see my friends at the moment and that makes me sad and I'm like I don't really consider myself an extroverted person and often find kind of like social interactions quite stressful but when you have no choice in the matter and you basically can't see anyone and your only option is zoom which I am not a big fan of like I can't do you know for a very long time yeah I have been feeling those feelings by baking lots of cakes and then taking them to them. people oh, <laughs> yes, <that too. laughs> um, yeah the 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 week before Christmas I was really sad because I couldn't go home and see my mum and so I spent like three days in the kitchen and I baked something like 190 individual items and then we packaged them all up and cycled 120 miles around London to all of our friends that we could get to and delivered like a little bag of treats and then we got to have a five minute chat and be like hello I haven't seen you for a year I'm so glad you're still alive and you look well here have a mince pie it was really nice that's really nice and taking us away from niceties I don't know maybe it's <laughs> how how do you define bravery what a professional sounding segue <laughs> I was thinking about this today when I had to go to the post office um, and then did not end up going to the post office because the queue was huge. 
and you can buy stamps from Tesco's. So uh, I was sort of wandering around looking for stamps and I was trying to think about how I would answer that question. And I don't really know because I've sort of torn between two ideas of what bravery is because I, I kind of feel like I think about bravery in terms of those single massive acts of courage where you have an act or decision that you have to make and then you don't want to do the thing but you know it's the right thing to do so you to decide to do it uh, anyway but that's not really something that I've ever had to do in my life and so I, I don't really have that kind of understanding of bravery so I guess I see it more as, as something in terms of like it's all the kind of like little things where you're like working on yourself even though it's hard or you're like showing up every day and all of those kind of things but I think that's I find it harder to associate that kind of behavior with bravery because my understanding of bravery from the way that we often talk about it in stories and things like that is that it's often a moment and like a huge undertaking yeah yeah, I started the podcast, uh, like the theme of the podcast came about because people tell me I'm brave when I struggle to take it in and accept it. And then I think now it's mutated to let's define bravery in another <laughs> way. It's not that huge moment of bravery, but we all do like little brave things every day, if not every day, sometimes. Yeah, I'm going to hold my hands up on this audio medium and say that this is probably because of the amount of time that I've spent looking at queerness and society's construction of gender. But I think that there is like a, that kind of, it's a single heroic moment. It's like quite a toxic masculine kind of contrivance of, of what that is. Whereas there's another way of looking at it, which is maybe more like on a smaller scale in terms of individual actions but is more kind of constant. And I wonder the extent to which I've just been thinking about this too much and therefore trying to see everything through the way that we binary, make gender really binary in society and therefore this is all like nonsense and how much of it actually maybe is to do with associate bravery with masculinity and therefore the kinds of ways that we see women and feminine people like turning up every day is only detached from that concept of bravery because of the patriarchy. I start the podcast by saying a moment in the past week where I have been brave. This week, maybe I will use, on Saturday, I went out after a 12-hour stream that I sat down on the sofa the whole day and I thought I need to walk. So I went out at 11 p.m. And I went, I was meeting a friend at the end of the road, but the truth is that I went past uh, a lot of people that make, made me feel uncomfortable and I think they made me feel uncomfortable or I thought they made me feel uncomfortable because I live in a body that is I don't know that makes some interactions seem more dangerous in some ways but my friend who's um, a man and who is like a mus muscly man and whatever he was he said he felt very uncomfortable on the walk towards me he came through the canal at night so yeah it is uncomfortable but it was the first time he felt uncomfortable in that way but yeah I do think it's I don't know if it's brave because I didn't have to go out right but uh, and 
there but there there is something brave about going out at night and there's something gendered as well although my friend was also uncomfortable but yeah so yeah I do think and again I'm not I don't know if I'm making any sense but I do think there's maybe something gendered about bravery because I don't know if everyone would think that this experience is brave because it's not one of those brave things where I put myself in front of a car like Superman and just stopped it I don't know (laughs) yeah yeah I bet there's like there's gonna be like a English lit scholar or someone who's reading this being like oh I've written about this why haven't you read my paper I'm so sorry that was a (laughs) such a mean impression of English lit scholars uh some of my best friends English lit scholars you're all lovely but uh the um I think this is this is it's also potentially one of those things where as you say it's like a dimension of it and what I don't have yet having not read the existing work on it and having not like spent enough time thinking about it is that I can't express the fact that gender is clearly a dimension of bravery I can't express that in a way that's kind of like clean enough without it's me sounding like I'm saying oh it is everything to do with gender because obviously there's it like plays a role in the way that gender and the patriarchy play a role in everything in our lives but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's like a causal factor yeah there's so many new and that's why it's sometimes hard to talk about these sort of things um like gender being one of them because there's so many nuances to it and I think what makes it hard is the amount of people who see it as a black and white thing so it make makes the discussion harder to have because you're trying to have a nuanced discussion and people answer you by saying oh no you're wrong because it's either this or that and yeah I think that's not the right way to go about discussing things uh, any things um, which brings us to my next question again and a very uh, clean segue seamless <laughs> absolutely seamless have you thought about moments in your life in which you have been brave yeah I was also thinking about this because I knew that you were going to ask this question. And I think this is what led me to the kind of thinking about bravery, the difference in definitions of bravery is like being big moments and then not moments, because there are things that I can think of that I have done, which potentially require bravery, but I can't think of any times where I have consciously been like, right, Keris, you got to be brave now. So I've definitely done stuff like, get on roller coasters and intervene in situ- like domestic violence situations and one time my partner and I went and I'm sorry for just like dropping that in there uh that was uh, not meant to be as casual as it sounded uh but like th- those that was one of the first things that I thought of when trying to work out how to answer that question but then the other thing that I was thinking of was this one time my partner and I we uh went on a cycling holiday in Dorset and it was great um we hired these like chunky hybrid bikes and loaded them up with like four days worth of stuff on the back to cycle this trail uh which is in it goes from Dorset to France so we were doing like the English bit of it and it is a cycling trail that cyclists use to train for alpine cycling so it was way hillier than we were anticipating it being and we met this guy in a van who gave us these bikes and we drove out of the like town that we'd got the train to on 
cycleways and then got properly into the countryside and were cycling up and down these hills and they were so hilly and the gears on the bike didn't work properly and I've mostly only cycled in London for the past kind of six years and so there are no hills here like I was not in any way prepared and we cycled from this town to a vegetarian commune place that we were staying the night at and then cycle back the next day and on the way back we were just supposed to be doing the same route back but we missed a turning we came down this absolutely huge hill to an a road and we're like well this is not where we're supposed to be that's quite a busy road we've been cycling around these nice little like country lanes the whole time where there aren't really any cars so we must have gotten lost and our options were either cycling back up the massive hill that we had just come down or cycling along this a road for three miles and the hill was so big so we were like i guess it's the a road so we cycled along this a road it was kind of fine and then suddenly we were going downhill and it's the fastest that i've ever gone on a bike on this like kind of like old high like not greatly maintained hybrid bike that was shaking all over the place we were doing 30 to 40 miles an hour and the only thing that I could really think of was please don't hit your brakes if you hit your brakes you will die Uh, you will come straight off the top of that bike and then the road will just take all of your skin off and then they won't even be able to identify you just don't whatever you do don't hit the brakes even though the only thing that you want to do right now is hit the brakes please do not hit the brakes and we got down to the bottom of the hill and then we had to cycle up a hill still on the a road so we cycled up this hill extremely slowly which i think if we had been doing this in london with london traffic someone would have just run us off the road but there was literally nothing that we could do because we were in the middle of nowhere we didn't have a car we just we had to get to the place where we were going so that we had somewhere to sleep and so our only kind of option was to crawl up this hill with this train of cars behind us going at like five miles an hour and it was very steep and I was not very fit Uh, And at one point there was this tiny verge just on the side of the road. And I heard my partner like behind me being like the verge, go on the verge. So we collapsed onto this verge and ate some sweets and were like grateful that we were still alive and then had to wait for a gap in the traffic to then get back onto the hill and finish it. And it's one of the scariest things that I have ever done, but I'm very like, I think, and we did have to be, I think quite brave (laughs) to have, to have done it. I don't, but at the time it didn't really feel like that because first of all, looking back on it, much more dangerous than it seemed at the time. And second of all, it didn't really feel like we had any other kinds of options. But it's something that I think about being a cyclist in London, especially being a cyclist who is often coded as as a woman, which I'm not, but white van men don't really care about technicalities when they are screaming at you out of their van window. So there's like quite a lot of research which suggests that we know that women are more likely to be in accidents and one of the theories behind that is this idea that there are things that you can do to make yourself safer on the road but they involve all involve taking up space and being like making the decision to pull out into the middle of the road so the car can't get past you instead of trying to squish yourself up against the pavement or up against the parked cars where you someone could open a door into you or or you could get like crushed by something something turning so you do it even though you don't want to because it's the safest thing to do but you have to make yourself do that thing that seems scary because the alternative is kind of scarier yeah so when when I was expecting the questions about bravery 
I thought of all the times that I have had to talk to shouty men and ask them to stop being shouty. And I thought about cycling. Yeah. And that's that's something I personally find very brave that people do. I've learned how to cycle like three years ago and I I'm not brave enough to go in the traffic. And actually, I was thinking that when I was learning how to cycle, I took the council classes and I got myself on a bicycle and I was cycling 15 minutes after I got myself on a bicycle. I fell before I got myself on the bicycle as I was uh, rolling up the bicycle to a place where we could start cycling. I fell like on the bike and I thought, okay, cool. This is great. I'm going to fall so many times, but I actually didn't fall that many times except for the moment where I was cycling and there was a, a, a small inclination and we were going downhill and I thought, oh shit, this is going too fast. It was very small. It was like in Hackney, in one of the Hackney parks. Uh, and I thought, oh, we're going so fast. I need to brake. And yeah, I, the bicycle just propelled me forward. So when you were describing the going down a hill at 30 kilometers an hour and thinking I just can't brake, my everything in me was... Uh, what's the worth my my little butthole was uh even Punching. smaller than usual yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah I like cycling in London is I think I I'm not confident enough to do that uh, thing of I'm going to just put myself on the road I'm just going to go because if I'm here waiting and hesitating a car will run over me I know I'm not confident enough to do that so I know that makes me be at a bigger risk so i I just don't cycle on traffic (laughs) very understandable i've yeah i've so i've been cycling in london for like five or six years now kind of on and off and i find it so i've I've also cycled lots of different bikes started with i had a a very nice bike that i bought to london which almost immediately got stolen and then uh, a string of really terrible bought in quite dodgy circumstances bikes that were all falling apart and then I got my first road bike and then at the beginning of last year my partner and I (laughs) we bought matching bikes which is maybe a bit (laughs) a bit much but they are beautiful and they're like um it's the first bike that I've ever had that fits me because I'm quite a peculiar shape and size and so having this that you like go to the place and then they put you on a bike and they measure you and they make sure that it's all the perfect dimensions and it's amazing how more brave I feel on that bike than on other bikes because I know first of all my my brakes are excellent I have disc brakes now and so they're just a lot more responsive so I know when I can stop when I want to and I also know that I can accelerate when I want to and I've had some really unpleasant experiences in London on the bike with drivers driving at me I got tailed once by a guy who drove all the way down Kilburn High Road near where I live like shouting at me outside the window because I he was doing a three-point turn in the middle of the high road was doing that really ambiguously so he had like pulled in so I thought he was parking so I drove past him turned out he was doing this three-point turn and so I passed him when he was trying to reverse into the middle of a busy high street and so he then followed me all, all the way down the high street so that he could pretend to swerve into me and shout at me outside of his his window until I was able to stop behind a bus and he went ahead and there's been and my my partner she was doored once we were cycling to a friend's house and I heard this like crunching sound and a 
passenger in an Uber had opened his car door into her and knocked her off her bike. And so now whenever we cycle together, I'm like a little part of me is clenched because I'm she always cycles behind me. So I'm never going to see it. But I just yeah. hear like I heard the sound and then I heard her shouting. And in the pandemic, especially, I feel like a lot more people are using cars and a lot more people are frustrated and pent up and are not good drivers as a consequence. And so yeah. it is often worse to be cycling, but also I don't have to leave the house as much. And I actually don't leave the house as much for the past couple of months. I basically have been leaving the house once a week to volunteer as a cycle courier for a food bank. And so I cycle once a week and then I spend the rest of the time in the flat only with my partner. And then I go outside into the world again. And I'm like, oh, there are all these people driving tanks who could kill me if they wanted to or just weren't paying attention. And so it's like, it's a much more stressful environment to be a cyclist because I'm not desensitized or practiced like I used to be when I yeah. was kind of commuting and stuff. That's like something else that scares me is that those people, because I've I've heard that that happens when people just like tail you and uh, shout at you and keep going. And I've had that happen to me driving a car because I used to drive in Portugal. I haven't driven in the UK, but the car is like a huge machine that can kill people. A bicycle isn't. So I feel way safer inside a car than on top of a bicycle. Don't offer very much protection. Yeah, no. When you do shout back a, shout, a shouty man, uh, <laughs> is it uh, like a conscious, do you consciously know you are being potentially brave by shouting back at shouting man? I think this is another like, you're not thinking about it in the moment because a couple of times when it's happened, it's been when my partner and I are together and uh, for example, coming back late at night through Hyde Park, potentially we've had slightly too much to drink and so are wheeling the bikes instead of cycling the bikes being responsible because otherwise I'm on the bike basically never see it yeah uh but although there was one time in Bethnal Green when I was coming up to a set of traffic lights and I had to like stop get off the bike wheel it over to this couple be like is everything okay have a nice chat with one of them have them reassure me that it was actually fine and then like have to get back into the road again but anyway normally not on the bike and there's been a couple of times when I've been with my partner and we've noticed this thing and so we sort of like sidled over to eavesdrop a bit on the conversation gauge the seriousness what's actually kind of happening and what might be the best thing to do and her we've talked about it we there was this one time when we were in Hyde Park and there was this quite young couple And I am going to gender these people. I obviously don't actually know whether or not these are the pronouns that they would choose to use, but this is the perception. And I don't want to presume that or, or like imply that, you know, the aggressor is always a man and the victim is always a, or the survivor is always yeah. a, a woman. But I think that they were making specific decisions in their lives to express those gender identities. Anyway, uh, it was quite a young couple and he was getting quite aggressive and also like physically holding onto her so that she couldn't leave. So we stopped and kind of like hung around to see what she might need from us. And then he was holding onto her and sort of shaking the arm that he was holding onto. So I was like, that's my, that's my limit. That's, the, that's what I'm prepared to see. And that, that means I have to intervene. So like inserted myself in between the two of them was like, mate, you can't, You need to you need to stop shouting. You need to take your hands off her. Basically, what happened then was that he did and um, did the classic. This is none of your business kind of thing. And at that time, I wouldn't have considered what I did to be brave because he was 
in my eyes, a child. And I say that because I have done a lot of teaching. I've done a lot of teaching with like moody, shouty teenagers. And so from my perspective, anyone who's younger than me is a child. And I have been in that situation where I'm just trying to get them to do their maths homework or to, to participate in the class discussion or whatever. And I kind of a little bit that changes the way that I see that dynamic. So he didn't see him as as that aggressive in in, in that situation. Uh, But I like inserted myself into that conversation and was like, this behavior is deeply inappropriate. I'm going to phone your parents. No, I was like, this is, you know, you, you need to let go of her. You need to stop shouting. And then basically he was like, this isn't any of your business. She was like, we're fine. Don't worry about it. And then obviously they left and so when they left my partner was like you should not have intervened they've walked off now so we've no idea what's going to happen and there's nothing that we can do from this point onwards so one way of looking at it is that my like tolerance for what I consider to be his behavior like the unacceptable level where I felt it was immediately necessary that we had to intervene was much lower than hers or you could see it as she was kind of playing the long game and working out what would be the best way of for example getting that girl out of there, getting in some some backup. Don't really know what that backup would look like because we were not going to phone the police, but you know, there are other people that we could have called. But she definitely was thinking like we can't do anything to kind of like spook them and then lose the ability to yeah. intervene when it's really going to count. And from my perspective, I was like, where it's really going to count is now. But I wasn't thinking about that. I don't know what I would have done. I don't think I would have uh, thought too long game either, especially because um, it's like the dark park alone in the middle of nowhere. It's yeah. Yeah, just like that part of Hyde Park is just surrounded by really busy, fast roads. That sounds like you are uh, brave in a lot of those moments because you could also like a lot of people might not have even intervened or not even have stopped to to know what was going to happen. So is, is there like other moments in your life in which you haven't been brave? I think I would describe myself as quite like a, a scared and anxious person, <laughs> which I've now become the kind of person who describes himself as quite an anxious person, which is not a place that I ever thought that I would be. But I know that when I wrote up my PhD thesis, it was very stressful and it, like, I think physically broke my brain. Like, definitely something snapped or cracked inside my head, which has made me a lot more anxious. And I know that the way that I think about the world is different now to what it was five years ago before I started that process. And I now get a lot more worried about things. I overthink things a lot more. I... I'm a lot more anxious about a lot of stuff that I can't control. So I do not consider myself a a brave person because a lot of my inner monologue is not thinking brave thoughts or thinking about making brave decisions. It is being really scared about things all the time. I have given up on science before the PhD. That's the reason why I gave up on science because everyone around me who were doing PhDs were not in a good place. And I thought, I don't want to go there. (laughs) What made your mind break is it was it uh, the what did you do a phd in was it a theme of the phd or just the fact that it's a slog and that you yeah i no 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 it was it was not it was not a, a like stressful thesis i so i did i did my phd i studied the dark web um i wrote my thesis on websites that people use on the dark web to buy and sell drugs and basically my phd research was an investigation to see when law enforcement were intervening on those sites in whatever way they were doing that, how effective were they being? What kind of 
impact was that happening on the ecosystem? What impact was it having on the individuals who were participating in it? And I was not very good at it. I uh, did a maths degree and I really enjoyed my maths degree and I wanted to do a PhD in maths. And I spent the first year of my PhD doing quite like a theoretical mathematical kind of project which was looking at social media sites and how you can identify fake accounts based on the kind of shape of the network and looking at how many friends people have how they interact with people is there a way that you can design a system that makes it very difficult for people to create fake accounts but doesn't actually affect the people who are using the social media site normally um and so it was it was quite theoretical it was really really hard and the project just wasn't working and so my life was basically turning up every day thinking about something thinking that I'm getting somewhere realizing that I'm not having to start from scratch and it was going really badly and I basically had uh fell out with my supervisor and I think there are lots of different ways that you can tell that story from my perspective, I don't really know what happened, but I went into her office one day and she shouted at me. And so I went into the bathroom and I cried. And then she didn't speak to me for two weeks. And then we had a, a meeting where I was away teaching on a summer camp and we had like a, a Skype meeting with another academic in our department. And she basically just like humiliated me in front of this other colleague who I may have needed because he was yeah. quite senior in the department to support me in my PhD. And then I got an email from her saying that she didn't think this was working. But that was basically, from my perspective, that was everything. That's what happened, yeah. Yeah, which uh, like, I presume is not the case. Um, so uh, I, I am autistic and I'm aware that I, I do not pick up on all of the social cues that people exhibit in interactions so, so there, there presumably was other stuff going on from, but from my perspective that was the series of events and there was literally nothing in between those things no no no. that's not actually happening she didn't send me an email she sent me an email saying we needed to have a meeting with uh my second supervisor because she didn't think it was working out so then I went to this meeting not really knowing what to expect I was there my second supervisor was there my first supervisor was there and my second supervisor made me explain all of the problems that we were having in front of her and she didn't say anything to me she didn't make any comments she didn't offer her side I basically just had to explain everything not knowing if what I was saying was the full story with literally no ability to gauge what she thought of me at that time it was very stressful and then he was like so what do you want to do and so I had to say well I guess I need a another I need a different supervisor so then I had to find a new supervisor a new research project the company that was funding my PhD had gone into administration and not told any of us and so then I had to find additional funding for this project which didn't exist yet with a supervisor that hadn't agreed to be my supervisor otherwise I basically had just spent the last 18 months of my life failing at something and would have nowhere to go from that point and so that was quite a stressful time I did get a new project I got a new supervisor it got funding for it and my new supervisor was amazing he was an incredible supervisor very supportive but we then did have to do a full PhD research project in like half the time because yeah. 
I had wasted half my PhD working on something that was entirely not connected. Then everything had to move very quickly. I had to get a lot done in not very much time. But also during this period, I had my first girlfriend. I'd come out to my parents as as bisexual. I also like this was the beginning of me understanding my like gender queerness and trying to understand what that was. And um, that was quite a scary process. And because of those things, during this time period, my priorities had just massively shifted. And so I was not interested or as interested in either the mechanics of the PhD that I was doing or the subject of the PhD that I was doing. And so I was working a lot on this thing that was causing me a lot of stress, knowing that probably when it came to the end of it, I would not want to build on this thing that I'd created, but actually go and do something different. Yeah. So my, my understandably just, I feel like either like, um, sometimes it feels a bit like a, like an elastic band just like snapped in my brain or like a plastic children's toy kind of cracked. Uh, and then, so like none of the parts quite fit together anymore. And, uh, yeah, that's, has uh, had a lot of repercussions on the way that I am able to like concentrate or not concentrate and yeah. use my brain and stuff now. You may not have like an answer for this, but I sometimes wonder about myself and your story made me think about it again I also feel like I was less anxious in the past because I knew less about myself and there was more of a plan of what my life was going to be like and, and as I started to understand more about myself and realizing that maybe some of the things I was doing weren't that logical to who I actually am it makes me overthink everything now. Whether is this real? Uh, am I doing take, making the right choice? Uh, wh- what's happening? Uh, so I feel like I've become more anxious by knowing myself better, which I think doesn't even make any sense. But I feel like that has happened. Is that something you relate to? I think that that sounds logical to me. I don't know if I relate to it. I think that part of the things that I feel anxious about is you know whether or not I'm making the right choice or how are my actions affecting others I'm like second guessing those things Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't see that I guess the thing that I don't relate to is that being caused by me knowing myself better yeah that sounds very stressful yeah, sometimes it is. Uh, I'm going to a therapist. It's not helping, but who knows? Maybe it will <laughs> well, in takes, the future. Takes takes time. Takes time. But the like on the bravery thing. When I was doing my PhD, someone who I worked with on non-PhD stuff, but we did a lot of kind of like science communication, performing, and things together. She did two and a bit years of her PhD, and then she quit because she didn't see the value in the work that she was doing in the wider context of her field but she also knew that this wasn't what she wanted to do and she knew it wasn't making her happy and she was from the Netherlands and was studying in the UK so she knew quitting would mean that she'd have to move back to the Netherlands she knew that quitting would mean that she'd invested two and a half years into this thing that hadn't worked out she knew that if she quit then she was going to have to like start from scratch and work out what she should do but she did it and I remember thinking at the time that that was an incredibly like brave thing to do and it is something that I do think about whether the because my attitude was like you just got to get it done and things will be better when you get it done but maybe the thing to have done 
I was in awe of and quite jealous of the fact that she had been brave enough to be like, no, I know this isn't what I want to do. Actually, I don't have to do this thing. I'm not going to do it. Mm -hmm. I get it. And I've like, because I have been in like academia and around academics a lot and a lot around a lot of people with PhDs and I knew that a lot of them are struggling and they went through and I'm going to finish this and there's a couple of people who gave up on their PhDs sort of in the same way and at the time I didn't necessarily think they were brave I thought they were giving up so but now looking back and now with what I know from life now I think yeah that that was brave and you were able to stop doing something you didn't want to do and just figure out what you wanted to do next but within my perspective of life then was you just finish it right you started it it's like you have a year left just finished so I I find it cool that you had the ability to recognize that this person was being brave by giving up on their PhD I didn't do anything about it though yeah true so materially what difference does it make to recognize that something is brave or, or not brave if it doesn't does it change anything? Yeah. Yeah. But so you will say that not giving up on your PhD then was something that you weren't brave at. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think that, I think that the reason why I did not quit my PhD when potentially it was the right decision to make was because I was not brave enough. You also had a lot going on by what you just told us. So yeah, it's like, it's hard to get like a a line if there's so much going on yeah yeah maybe it's maybe it's wrong to say that it was like I wouldn't maybe it wasn't the right decision but it was definitely a like it was a decision that I did not it was an option that I did not take because I was not brave enough yeah is there someone coming up in your life for which you will have to be brave I'm about to be in, uh, uh my, my brother is about to have a, a baby which I'm very excited about I've been so broody during lockdown which is an incredibly weird mix of emotions for, well, actually there may be other non-binary people listening to this being like, what are you talking about? It doesn't have to be, but I found it very strange uh, because I've always had quite a conflicting relationship with my uterus. And now we have to like team up like a, an odd couple uh, sitcom type thing where we've always hated each other, but we have to get along now. I but- now want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that show has a very niche audience of which you are a part. <laughs> my my brother and and uh, his partner, they have been trying to have a baby for a really long time, and it's complicated by a lot of different factors. But they were able to announce that they were pregnant uh, last year, and the baby is due in May, and we are very excited, and I'm really looking forward to it being safe enough for us to go and visit them, say hello to the tiny baby. I'm really excited to like be a part of their life. And I feel like my brother and I are very different people. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, being a part of the the kind of family unit, extended family unit, so that they have lots of different types of support in their life. Have you had contact? This sounds dodgier than I wanted to sound. Have you had contact with little children? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, I have uh, in the non-dodgy way (laughs) that you intended it as. Not not with most of the people that I, so I've done a lot of teaching through like teaching my PhD uh, kind of subjects and 
I do a lot of teaching of like public speaking and comedy and that kind of thing. So I've worked with a lot of young people, not tiny people, because babies can't hold microphones or code. So there's no point teaching them Python at that age. I'm not so like familiar with them when they're really like very small. So that's terrifying. Kind of waiting for, you know, when they're four or five. And don't stop speaking and asking questions. That's the time that you can come in and answer all yes, the questions. I love that time. I've seen throughout lockdown, I've seen so many people complaining about the like nonsense questions that their children keep asking them, which, but I love those kind of questions. And I've tried saying on Twitter, you know, if your five-year-old is asking you that question that begins with why is the sky blue and then doesn't finish until it's two hours past their bedtime because they can always follow up with the what just give them to me i will have that <laughs> conversation with a child a conversation that goes nowhere that is all i want yeah i i like i have a niece and she's 11 is she 11 or 12 she's 11 or 12 <laughs> and she used to ask like a lot of questions and i'd prefer that those moments then when she just run around and i had to like run after her because she could <laughs> go down the staircase or whatever that was more tiring than just answering questions yeah yeah I'm not going to be a running around aunt <laughs> uncle type figure I'm going to be a here is your first collection of books type where my, my partner and I often talk about kids and make fun of each other of like which parental roles we're each going to play because my, my partner is really into like skateboarding and we watch a lot of parkour videos and snowboarding and all of these extreme sports which I have no time for look very scary no thank you and we've already agreed that she's going to be the cool parent who will take them skateboarding and I will pack them some sandwiches because <laughs> I am not brave enough to watch them and I will just be stood on the sidelines like <gasps> like that every time they do something and it will completely embarrass them and throw them off their game so it's better for everyone if I just sit in the car yeah I agree and I'd say that it, it won't only embarrass them it will make especially the kid afraid of doing stuff so don't do that I think yeah. I blame my parents for being so afraid of doing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> is there someone a real or fictional from your life or just like a famous person that you would use as an example of bravery That is a good question. It's also one of those questions where if this had casually come up in conversation, I would already have the answer. But because you've asked me this question, I've forgotten the name of every other human <laughs> being that has ever existed, real or not. So like, I'm going to come up with an answer now. And then in about an hour, I'm going to be like, why didn't you say this, you silly person? Going with my gut, the person that I immediately thought of was Mindy Kaling and I think that that's not necessarily a brave thing and just a th like she's a person that I admire greatly and really wish was my friend but I think so I make a lot of stuff and put that stuff into the world for people to consume and have opinions about and I do hope that they have opinions about those things but I get very worried about how the things that I make are interpreted by other people especially doing comedy and especially doing comedy about like queer identity and writing stuff about queer history and I think a lot of it is 
to do with surfing back to the like autism thing, which I don't particularly like the description of autism as a communication disorder, but it is potentially like a necessary element of it because I do often feel like I say something, but I don't get across the thing that I mean. And then given the things that I talk about that can be upsetting or make people angry. And I get very worried about, I get, social media makes me really anxious because you are talking to a bunch of strangers that you've never met before who don't know you and don't trust you and you don't know them. So you don't know the way to talk to them about things. And particularly recently, a lot of the stuff that Mindy Kaling has made has been semi-autobiographical. It's also been, been incredibly unapologetic about the way that she has been like, I'm telling my story and I get to do that in the way that I want she must get so much shit from it for it and I have read like a lot of that stuff and I I'm not saying that she's perfect because uh, no one can create like art or comedy without it being problematic in some dimensions but the but so much of it is it's failed to tell someone else's story and so they have taken objection to it or they've like not connected with it and therefore it must be wrong for her to like still be making the same kind of thing, which is, no, I'm I'm trying to tell you what life is like and has been like for me, not trying to say what it, I think it's quite brave to, in the face of people's criticism, like still keep doing the stuff that you care about. I realize that you can say that without context and it sounds like I'm saying, oh, I think it's very brave for you to receive all this criticism and then completely ignore it, which uh, I think that about lots of other creators, (laughs) Tina Fey, who do that kind of thing, who like, I don't agree with the way that they do that. So I may also be wrong about Mindy Kaling, but when you said, is there someone that you think is brave? I think she's pretty brave. And also very cool. And maybe she would like to be my friend because clearly she listens to this podcast because why wouldn't she? And so she'd be like, that Karis is a cool kid. Let's hang out post lockdown. Because you said uh, social media scares you. I think one of the scary things about social media, some of it, Twitter, one of them, is that you have a limited amount of uh, words to pass information right so you won't have that nuanced speech that we were talking about before and I've also had like a couple of big discussions with mates from uni who I'm still in like a a whatsapp chat with to do with fascism and racism and they're like big discussions and I've now decided that I will only talk in speeches so I will write a big speech in the whatsapp chat I won't have like a, a discussion. I will just write like a big speech with all the nuances in it two hours after you say something that offends me. <laughs> and I that you good. can't do on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good to have a system. I It was something that I found with trying to work out this book proposal. The early draft that I sent you, oh, it just took such a long time because basically every time I wrote a sentence, I would be, this isn't perfect because this is a history and I can only tell that story, that historical account based on the sources that I've read and those sources are biased through all of these lens. And what if I say this? And there was a scientist who spoke out against conversion therapy. And so when I say that science was doing all of this, that doesn't include them and that's going to be really upsetting for them. And uh, how do I convey in this that this is kind of 
like entire this is entirely biased by my perspective and my understanding of the world and all of these things and so every time I wrote something every sentence that I wrote that I wanted to write would be accompanied by like at least a paragraph if not five of me kind of undermining myself and it was just full of like oh so it's kind of like uh, it's a bit um sort of and all of these kind of qualifiers and caveats and then that didn't they didn't like that version and then I was talking to my agent and he was very patient with me and I kept sending him all of these draft outlines and proposals and stuff and he would kind of send them back being like I think this is fine but I do uh, wonder if you have something more interesting to say and not telling me that it was like shit (laughs) to do better but just being like just kind of pushing what I was prepared to do each time and then I had like a good afternoon where I sat down and I just started writing about my experience and then from that it was like I I physically cannot write a book where I cannot be confident in the things that I'm saying so I need to work out how to create a space where I can say stuff that I'm confident in but in a way that allows other people to like engage with it in a way that they want and that's really up to them but the important thing for me right now is that I can't be like, I want to get my point across, but I'm not writing this book to make everyone happy. I'm writing this book because I have all these things to say yeah, and they can do whatever they want with that. And so I've been trying to be more brave in the stuff that I create in terms of acknowledging that this is like, like a large part of why I'm making this stuff is for me. And if I'm making this for me, then I have to accept, acknowledge that not everyone is going to like it. And at some level that doesn't matter, which is quite a, that's been a, a, a kind of difficult thing for me to be thinking and overthinking about. But I do admire that quality in the, the work that Mindy Kaling creates. Because yeah. you do want to please your audience, right? You want, like, especially if you perform live, you need that uh, feedback. But that makes me think of two things. And I don't want to, like, we're recording for a while and I don't want to keep you. But two things that happened recently. One of them is I have a, a friend who's a historian and he posted yesterday because, again, there was uh, a thing in Portugal about this author. They want to add a like a note to this book that's a book that every kid reads in school and is um, an author from the 1800s and they want to add a note saying there may be some racist passages in this book know about it Uh, and some people are against it and a lot of people talk about oh he's a man from his time that's why the book says stuff like that which is to some extent correct but my friend who's an historian was saying that as an historian he doesn't like that expression because at that time there were other men that had different uh, conceptions of the world. So it was, it's not like everyone thought the same way. And also as an historian, you are always evaluating the past with your own eyes from the present. So the way you tell the story is also different than people will be telling it those many years ago. So I think that also comes when you are uh, investigating this uh, scientific history. It's also from your your eyes, your personal perspective. And the other thing is I'm, I'm also reading a book about Polari, the mm. language gay men would speak in the 40s and 30s. And the intro 
uh, chapter for that book is about how it's very much the perspective of this historian about the things he read and the people he was able to meet that still have memories of that time. And even like I said, gay men, that's one of the things that he goes into a lot about is whether it were only men that spoke Polari, if they will today identify as men or not. Uh, all of that, it goes into all of that and then chooses to say, I'm going to say this was a language and I'm going to say this was a language spoken by gay men, but there may be other perspectives. This is my perspective, which I also think is a cool thing for someone who researched history to, to say that this is my perspective. It's, I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's the reality because we can't say what the reality is. I would, I would like to read that book. As for the podcast, yeah. we're at the end of it. If you don't have any, like, any other big things about bravery you want to say. No, no, no. I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna jump in with another thing based on the thing that you just said, but we yes. could probably do that forever. So, I can stop it. Just say. It. Oh, I just so I, 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 okay. So this is this is I think a classic example of Keris overthinking things. But I, a lot of the comedy work that I do comes under the title of a unifying theory of gay because it's like taking the piss out of scientific research on queer people and often what I'll do is I'll like recreate scientific experiments that have been done and make them about scientists instead of queer people and use that to kind of explain why the science is is ridiculous um but I call it a unifying theory of gay because it I think is a very funny title and it it's good to have the same kind of branding on all the things. So I did this, at a, I did the Leicester Comedy Festival, performed the show under that title. And then I tweeted about that. And then someone on my Twitter timeline was complaining about how queer people use gay to mean LGBTQI plus or use it to mean queer. And probably they were not talking about me, but my I went into like overthinking mode and got kind of like upset that they may have been subtweeting, which I just, I hate subtweeting as a concept. It's like the least efficient way of having, com but anyway, um, but that's obviously because they're not trying to have a conversation, they're expressing themselves, which obviously they can do. And I, you know, I have to keep reminding myself that and to stop being so judgmental all the time. 2020 was meant to be not so judgmental 2020. And that went out the window five minutes into lockdown because I had to spend the entirety of lockdown listening to my neighbor have awful business phone calls on the balcony about how he's going to invest in coca-cola because he's just got a good feeling and uh, the branding is just better than pepsi and i wanted to punch my way through the wall Was and tell him to be Sunak? quiet <laughs> uh, probably so yeah so um but anyway, they did the subtweet, uh, probably not a subtweet, probably had nothing to do with me, but I was sat there thinking like, you haven't come to the show, so you haven't heard the material that I've written about why I called it that, and why I don't want to call it a unifying theory of LGBTQIA+, or a unifying theory of queer, because neither of those things sound as good, and like that decision between what sounds funny and inclusivity 
is a call that I get to make yeah. because I'm the person who wrote the show. And so I know, and I got so angry at this person who has no beef with me, wasn't ta- like, was making a very valid point. And if I hadn't just posted that show and I saw them writing that thing, I'd be like, yeah, that is a good point. People need to stop doing that. But then because uh, it's because I can't, I can't like it's still kind of stuck in this trying to please everyone yeah. thing instead of just letting other people get on with their own lives and have their own opinions, including of my art. And if I can't handle that, probably shouldn't be making it in the first place. I'm really sorry that I've brought my, I'm having a lot of successive crises at the yeah. moment and I've just... I think we all are. And I uh, just thought that that particular use of gay to mean everyone that is within the LGBTQI uh, plus community is something that has given me stress on comedy shows <laughs> when the queer comedian on stage will ask, is anyone in the house gay? And is a man who's saying, is anyone in the house gay? And I don't say anything because... I'm not. And then his reply is, oh, then you're all straight. No, no, you're not. <laughs> it's like something that happens to me a lot. And I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Uh, the only solution that I have to that is just like going through literally every single one of them, which I think I've now worked out how to do in a way. And it's, it's, it's funny, but it doesn't mean that I have to give up five minutes of every 10 minute set that I have just to do the like all the admin. Yeah. But it's it's the problem with social media. There's like there's no space for being ironic because in order for irony to land, people have to know that you're being ironic. And why would a random person who's not very familiar with my material presume that I have the capacity for irony? That would involve like having some goodwill against uh, like towards your fellow human beings. And that kind of stuff just doesn't survive. It's been eroded by the last year and all of the years that have come before it. Yeah. And I'm not going to keep you longer because I was going to go on another rant oh, about something sorry. else. But I don't, I don't, I told you I'd take an hour from your time. So I don't want to. Like, probably what we should have done. On Zoom. We probably should have had like a social catch up and then recorded yeah. the podcast. <laughs> but I will ask you uh, the last qu- question is just for you to promote yourself. Uh, is there Ooh. anything you want to plug? If it comes out before the 28th of March, you can see a unifying theory of gay at the Cambridge Science Festival. Um, I think it's on at like eight o'clock in the evening or something or on, on the Sunday around that kind of time. And uh, there'll be, I will put the information on my website so people can go to carriagebradley.com and they can find out where to get tickets. I'm using gay in a unifying theory of gay ironically. So if you are not gay, but are still interested in queer history and are queer in a different way to being gay then the show is is still very much if not more for you um but the main thing that I want to plug is that one of my projects for 2021 is that I've started a newsletter which uh because Twitter does not have enough characters and it makes me really paranoid <laughs> I've started releasing a monthly newsletter you can sign up on my website and it comes out the second Friday of every month. There's some terrible artwork, a terrible comic that I'm making called Nacho Man and an essay about something that I've been thinking about. So like podcasting or anxiety or, or uh, queerness. Uh, and then there's usually a review as well. So, and a puzzle. There's a puzzle. And if enough people start doing the puzzle, then there will be prizes for participating Ooh. in the puzzle. So I get your n- newsletter and I've never tried to, to do the puzzle. Now I will, because <laughs> if there's prizes, there's uh, an incentive. 
Yeah, I think when I, I think maybe when I get to 50 followers, 50 subscribers, then I will do a, I will give out a prize to the the puzzle winner. Everyone sign up because we'll get prizes. The prizes will not be very good. They will be a terrible badge that I've made, but uh, it's nice to cool. win something. Thank Your you. Badges are colorful and glittery. Some of them, at least, I don't know if they all are, but I've seen colorful, glittery badges that I thought, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> well, if if people would like to make uh, to buy my terrible badges, I have an Etsy page which is badly made badges. Should I also I will put all the links to this on my website. Yeah, and I will link the website on the show notes. That seems uh, like the so most much. efficient way of doing this. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for being a guest at my podcast. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow me at, at @mariandisbeats on Twitter and Instagram for all dowdy updates. As all podcasts will tell you, all rates and reviews will be super welcome. And do share the podcast with your friends or on your socials. Hashtag DowdyPod. I would also like to know your pics of people who, to you, are examples of bravery. Share them on your reviews or tweet them at me. Huge, huge thank you to Champagne for the podcast jingle and a bunch of other things that are in podcast related. If you've enjoyed listening to Dowdy, have some spare to give, and would like to support me and help me improve on my tech and skills, all tips are welcome through PayPal and Coffee on at Mariana's Beats. I've been Mariana Pejdal. Until next week.